Hey, good morning, Four Corners. My name's Ben. Once again, we're so glad that you are here for the kickoff of Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. I'm so excited about this message series. I've been looking forward to it all year long when we planned it some time ago. And so uh, what we're going to do is look at over the next four or five weeks a handful of things that kind of sound right and they're believable to a degree. But by believing them and especially by acting on them, we actually create for ourselves problems, all right? And so today we're going to talk about this idea that a, a godly home guarantees godly kids. All right, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, did you watch the news at all this week? A couple of major events in the Christian world happening this week. It turns out that Sylvester Stallone became a believer in Jesus this week. I read his testimony. Don't know if you guys saw that or not, just found that interesting. And then the other one that I saw this week, somebody in, in Hollywood as well, uh, is it Shia LeBeau? Is that how you say his name? He's in the movie Fury. Have you guys seen that? He also became a believer. If you get a chance to read his testimony, make sure your kids aren't looking at the screen with you because he became a Christian in a real way, he says. And then he throws a few expletives in there as well to describe just how real it was. Just fascinating to me how God works around the country, all right? So I say that to say, look, there's a lot of things that happen under the banner of Christianity that deserve a little more intricate look, all right? doesn't mean that we're being judgmental. It means that as we look at the world around us, it's our responsibility to process what we see through the lenses of Scripture, through the lenses of the example of Jesus, and through the lenses of, of accumulated wisdom over time. And then from that investigation, we can think about things more rationally and helpfully. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go to a handful of verses today, one particular one in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22, uh, one verse, verse 16. Proverbs 22, 16 is a very, very famous verse related to parents. But I, I have to tell you before I get started on this, I, I'm a little, I, I'm in a unique position today because um, if, I, if I were given this message when I was, uh, let's say, 25, when I was really beginning regular preaching, you know, um, I would give this message in a much more different tone and demeanor. Because at 25, as a young man, um, <laughs> I knew everything about parenting. <laughs> I knew everything. I could go into a grocery store, and you've seen this. You've seen the kid crying, like in the grocery store, like grabbing for stuff, and the parents having a rough time. At 25, 26 years old, I knew exactly what that parent needed to do to fix that unruly child. I had crystal clarity on good parenting. Now, by the time I was 30, and my daughter was older, and then we, you know, I get into my mid-30s, and I've got a few kids now, um, what's happened to my confidence quotient on parenting has just kind of steadily dropped. Uh, I'm not sure I know exactly what every, every, everybody needs to do in their parenting situations. I taught high school for a while. I got to see a lot of things up close. I have teenage kids now. And so what, what I want to, I'm saying all that to say this is that today what we're going to do is we're not going to do anything to attempt to pour guilt or heap condemnation on anybody today. In fact, the whole goal is to be an encouragement today to parents, to aunts and uncles who have influence on kids' lives and if, you, if you're in your 20s, it's hopefully to give you a little bit of a, a, little bit of a framework to understand some other things. But, but, but primarily what I want to do today is I want to expose what really is kind of like an urban legend around parenting. That if, if you are a good enough, godly enough parent, create a godly enough environment for your kids, then you're guaranteed that they're going to be great as it relates to their spiritual development and their, and their spiritual health. The truth is, that's, that's an urban legend, that's a myth, that's a, that's a fallacy. There's, in the Bible, there's some indication of some things we can do to generally lead us in that direction, 
But the verse that we're looking at today doesn't guarantee us anything, and that may surprise you. So let me get all the way through it before you send me that nasty email, because this is a pet peeve verse of mine. It also happens to be a favorite verse in the larger Christian community. So in just a minute, we're going to get there. But I, I got to tell you about a story I heard this week. So I, I was sharing with a couple of pastors. I was with a bunch of pastors this weekend, or excuse me, this week, about 120 of them. We were sitting around talking about church stuff. And I was in a smaller group of about 20. And I said, and I'm talking about parenting this weekend. And so a friend of mine shared a story he had heard about a parent who was at the pool, the public pool, pool with her child. And uh, the lifeguard comes up to the parent and says to the parent, would you please get your son to stop urinating in the pool? Now, you don't want to have a conversation like that. That's embarrassing. So the mom very calmly looked to the lifeguard and said, look, you know, young kids, it's pretty common for them. I'll talk to them. It's pretty common for them to urinate in the pool. And the lifeguard looked at her and said, yeah, but not from standing on the diving board. They they don't do it that way. (laughs) I, I have felt that way as a parent, you know. I have felt that way many, many times as a parent. And what we're, we're going to do today is look at this idea that a godly home guarantees godly kids. And what I've got to tell you, though, is that as we get into it, the, the, we're going to take the wisdom from the Bible, primarily here the wisdom from the book of Proverbs, and, and that's a good thing to do. Because the book of Proverbs in your Bible is 31 chapters long, and it's filled with these kind of two-statement sentences that contain unbelievable truth, like, like incredible, life-changing at times, truth. Here's something, if, if you don't read your Bible much, here's something you could do. You could take, because there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, you could take a chapter a day uh, for every day for a month and read the book of Proverbs one chapter a day for a month or so. If it has 31 days, if not, you know, on the last day, squeeze in a couple, in February, squeeze in a few more. But you're going to get nuggets of wisdom that I guarantee you every single day there will be something tangible you can relate to life. That's just how practical this book is in our Bible. It's a jewel that, that doesn't get dug up enough uh, in our lives. So, so we're going to go to this book. It's incredible. But he, here's our challenge. When we take the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, and we marry it to some inaccurate facts or some faulty assumptions, then what happens is, is we, we end up making a fool's decision. The wisdom of God's word coupled with faulty facts and assumptions can lead us down a dangerous road. And what happens when we do that? We get these dangerous errors that eventually will bring disillusionment to our lives and heartache to our lives. Because while the scripture is true, our faulty assumptions about that and about its application, our underlying beliefs can get in there and muddy that water up. And that's exactly what happens with this myth. Now here's where we get the myth. It comes from Proverbs 22 verse 6. I think I said 16 earlier, but it's 22 6. And here's what this verse says to us. See if you've ever heard it before. Train up a child in the way he or she should go, and when he or she is old, he will not depart from it. That's what this verse says. Now, along with this verse, there's all kinds of stories in the Bible about parents and kids, all right? There's there's all kinds of stuff there in our Bibles about that. And so here's what we tend to think that this verse says, or here's the way I've heard it said. If I train up a child, if I train and raise my child or my children in a godly home, then my kids will be godly. If I do it right, create the right environment, then voila, my kids get the full benefit of that and they're fine. And then, and then we go on to say that even if they go through a season of rebellion, eventually they'll come back to Jesus because they've been raised correctly. 
They've been raised correctly. This is the way, just by show of hands, how many of you have been around church stuff, you've heard, I'm popping a little bit, how many of you have been raised around church stuff and you've heard uh, some version of this kind of teaching out there? Yeah, yeah, good, good. So here's the thing, it's not all wrong. It's not all wrong, but it's true in a nuanced sense. There's a challenge when we take the truth of Scripture and we couple it with faulty assumptions The challenge is when we do that, we end up covering over the truth, and then we don't get the benefit of that truth. We end up covering over the truth. It actually leads to heartache and disillusionment. And this passage has been used over and over and over again after church on Sunday mornings as people have driven home, after they volunteered in a kid's ministry somewhere, and they had to deal with one of your difficult children, one of my difficult children, And they're driving home, and it goes something like this. You know, if those parents would make these changes more in line with the teaching of God's Word, then these kids wouldn't be this way. And you and I both know, without me even going any further, that sometimes that's true. The challenge with this myth, this this dumb thing that some Christians believe, is that it's not true in every sense all the time. The truth of the matter is, is that you can create a godly environment at home, There's no such thing as a perfect parent, so we'll just get rid of that. But you can be a pretty good parent, and your kids can still not turn out the way you hope for them to turn out. That's just the truth of life. We're going to explore why that, with this verse, is a biblical reality that we as parents have to wrestle with. That kids who grew up in our homes, just like you grew up in somebody's home, you have to wrestle with this because believing that if you simply create the right environment, these false assumptions that say if you do that, then you're guaranteed a godly kid, then that's going to lead to some disillusionment, some pain, and some heartache. And I don't want that to happen to you. So one, one more time, I, I was, uh, again, talking with all these parents, and uh, one, one dad shared this story about, about his kid. I was trying to gather these stories, and I didn't want to share anything about my own kids and embarrass them, so I, I gathered other stories of people you don't know. All right, I got plenty on my own kids, plenty on my stupid parenting, but I'm not going to share any of that with you today because my goal is for nobody to feel condemnation, most of all me. All right, so, so, so here we go. He says, he says to me that one day he put his kid to bed, five-year-old kid, and they've had a struggle. He'd go to bed, he'd get up, go to bed, get up, go to bed. There was always a reason for him to say, get away, get away, get awake, right? And so he goes to bed, puts the kid to bed, and he's like, do not get up again. So he goes to his bedroom, kid's in his bedroom, and he hears, Dad, will you bring me a glass of water? And the dad yells back, I'm not bringing you a glass of water. I told you this is the last engagement. Parents, you ever been through this? Yeah, yeah. some of you young moms are like, this is my life, right? I'm not going through this again. So a few few moments later, the kid's like, Dad, I want to drink water. And dad says, I'm not going to do it. We're done for the night, right? So one more time, Dad, give me a drink of water. Dad says, if... I'm not doing it. If you call me again, I'm going to give you a spanking. So whatever you think about that, he, that's what he said he was going to do. I'm not endorsing spanking. Not, not endorsing spanking. All right, it's fine. So he says, <laughs> just, all right. So he says, if you, if you do it again, I'm going to give you a spanking. So a few moments later, his son yells out to him, Dad, when you come in here to give me a spanking, will you bring me a glass of water? What do you do with a kid like that? What do you do? I don't know what you do with that, all right? So, uh, so the belief is, is that if, uh, if you train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he'll not depart. But we interpret that to mean create a right environment, be a godly parent, I get a godly kid. So here's what the Bible really says about godly parenting and godly kids. Godly parenting. He says, kind of part A here, 
Here's what the Bible really says. Part A says, if you train up a child. So this is emphasis upon the child, all right? So let, let's talk for just a moment here. Who is the audience, the intended audience recipient of this particular proverb? So if you train up a child. So we're talking to parents. We're talking to parents here in this particular verse. If you train up a child. So who does the most training? Parents. I guess we could lar- more, more largely extend that to the broader family, maybe the community. If you, know, if you embrace that it takes a, a village to raise a child to some degree, at least the community has impact on a kid. So parents primarily, if you train up a child. So in, thi- in this regard, the emphasis here is upon parents and the effort that they do. It's in the second part of this verse that things begin to get muddied, and, and I think you'll be able to see very quickly a disconnect, all right? So you train up a child, then the second part, here's what it says, even when he's old, even when she's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, the problem here is, is that the way we've interpreted this verse is, is that somehow, if you do it right, train them up right, then, then most likely they'll never get away from it. And then the second thing we do is like, well, if they get away from it, when they're old, they'll come back to it. But in the environment where this verse gets thrown around a lot, and appropriately so, because it's a good verse, contains a lot of wisdom, we're going to get there in a minute. But in the environment where this verse gets thrown around a lot, what happens is, is that in those environments, typically there's a high value for the Word of God, which is good. There's a high value for taking God's word seriously. That's good. But when it comes to this particular verse, we do a little dance around. See, what the verse says is that when he or she is old, he or she will not depart from it, meaning that if you train them up rightly, then what's going to happen is they're going to stay with it. But what we do with this verse very often is say, well, even if they depart, when they're old, they're going to come back to it. But the verse doesn't say that. The verse says, train up a child, and then when even he or she is old, they're not going to depart from it. And so it begs an issue. What do you do when you have a kid who you've largely done it right with, understanding there's no such thing as a perfect parent, and they don't stick with it? They don't stick with it. How do you understand that? Does it mean, let me just throw out a couple of possibilities, does it mean that you have failed as a parent? That you didn't train them up right because if you could have pressed all the buttons at the right time, done all the things in the right way, responded to all the challenges in the right way, when you failed, always did it the right way in terms of making it right, then you could have had that godly kid. Is that what it means? That, let's press it one different way, that your result of a godly kid is completely dependent upon you as a parent to always do it right. And if you always do it right, then you get the gift of a godly kid. Now, now, here's the thing. I'm going to teach you two incredible biblical interpretation principles here, all right? So we, we have a church built largely for people that haven't felt at home in church on occasion, like maybe ever. We built a church for people who don't necessarily have a lot of biblical or theological knowledge. That's why we take our time and we do a lot of, you know, intangible Bible teaching with practical steps. So I'm going to teach you, for those of us that maybe haven't had this exposure, two incredible principles. Here's the first principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. So this is a life-changing way of understanding how to read your Bible. It isn't, I read the Bible and I interpret it, all right? You missed several steps there. Um, we'll, We'll do a little bit more on this in some other environments, but bottom line is you look at Scripture... And one of the tools we use to understand it is we look at other scriptures. Sometimes the scripture's right before it. Sometimes the scripture's right after it. That'll solve a lot of problems. 
Sometimes you look at that scripture and you put it in its appropriate type of literature that it is. Sometimes that, that'll solve a lot of interpretation problems. But the other bigger picture is, is all scripture that is meant to be true and applied to life has other scriptures that speak to that issue. And we take all those scriptures and we try to then build a consistent theology of that subject. So when it comes to like the, the person of Jesus, who he was, what he did, you have the gospels, but then you have Paul writing about it. So we use Paul to look back and apply meaning to those gospels. You have the prophets from the Old Testament anticipating Jesus coming. So we look at the prophets and we bring meaning from the prophets and we layer it over. And then we get a well-rounded, well-developed theology of who Jesus is and what he did when he walked this earth. So the, the first biblical principle for us today to try to get through this misconception is Scripture interprets Scripture. And, and here's the problem when you look at the Bible. You have some incredible parents who raised some kids that weren't so great. You have people who are held up as examples for us. You either have to embrace that reality that some incredibly good parents have had some challenges with a few kids, or you have to go the other side. You have to go to the point of saying, it requires perfection as a parent for me to get the guarantee of a godly kid. Now the problem with that option is, just like there's no such thing as a perfect person, there are no such things as a perfect parent. It's just not true. They don't exist. My wife's pretty close. She's pretty close, but, 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 but I'm, I'm not. It just It doesn't exist. And what happens then when we take this verse that does contain a lot of truth, and we're going to unpack it in just a minute, and we over-broadly apply it, what we do is we heap condemnation in a way that doesn't produce any godly results. See, here's what happens. When you and I read a verse of Scripture or we're sitting in a sermon and we're, we're hearing God's truth delivered, here's what God means to happen on occasion. We've talked about it the last couple weeks. He means on occasion for the Scripture to hit you square between the eyes and produce in you a sense of what the Bible calls conviction. What, what that means is that the Holy Spirit is taking the words being spoken or the words being read and bringing them alive to you and they speak to your situation, and you feel in your heart, in your mind, you know, in your thinking capacity, in your feelings, you, you feel a gap between what you're called to and where you are. That feeling of the gap is called conviction. That's a good thing. Conviction, God uses the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring us to repentance so that we make a change and turn towards Him. That's a good thing. When you take a myth... A misconception, that is, truth from God's word layered over with false assumptions. Rather than bringing conviction, which is good, it tends to bring condemnation, which is bad. Condemnation, in the theological sense, is an inordinate, inappropriate sense of conviction gone awry. That doesn't lead one to repentance, instead causes them to wallow in guilt and shame. And when we raise the bar of parenting to such a degree that it's all on you, parents, all of it is on you. And, and you can look at a kid at any point in their development, and if there's any challenges at all, it always means that there's a problem with the parent. What we've done is we've not opened the door for conviction only, we've opened the door fully wide for lots of condemnation. So let me show you some Bible here so you don't just think I'm pulling this stuff out of my ear, all right? 
Rebellion happens in the best of environments in the Bible. Rebellion happens in the best of environments. It happens in the best of environments in people's homes as well. So Genesis chapters 1 through 3. I don't know if you know your Bible or not, but here's what happens in Genesis 1 through 3. We have a perfect environment. A perfect environment. Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. This is the story that the Bible gives us of the beginning of, of humanity. And they're in the Garden of Eden and everything is right and perfect and good. And if a perfect and good environment would ever have the possibility of producing perfect and good results, this should be that. And yet it's not. Adam and Eve blow it. Turn the page. Now we've had a mostly good environment. I mean, it's been mostly good. We have three chapters of mostly perfect stuff and a couple of verses at the end of chapter three of not so good stuff. And by the time you get to chapter four, in the first family, let me tell you how bad it gets. One son kills another. I mean, we don't just go from mostly good, a little bit of bad, to a little bit of bad in the kids' lives. Uh-uh. We go from mostly good, some, some, some bad. Now, it's a big bad, but it gets restored. God makes a way to murder in the first family. All right, so, so you're like, all right, well, that's when sin gets introduced. Some of you are thinking that. So, right, so let's turn the page again. We get to the story of Noah. And the whole world is bad. But Noah and his wife are good. So good in the middle of the bad that God decides to save them and their kids because they're good. And Noah obeys God, builds an ark, takes him a long time, weathers the flood. Good environment. And in that middle of that good environment, there's some serious dysfunction that happens in your Bible in that environment, both with the parents and the kids. Here, here's my point. You go through Genesis chapters 1 through 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, up to about 12, and you get this mixture of good and bad with crazy results. But in Genesis chapter 12, you get the story of Abraham. He becomes the beginning of the story of Jesus. And he's a pretty good guy. He does incredible stuff. Not one of them are perfect. And yet in the middle of their goodness, there is a regular recurring badness that happens. So we're left with whether or not we have to be perfect or we have to manage the reality that rebellion happens even in the best of environments. So the practical implication here for me is some of us as parents... Of course, we're not perfect, right? You know this. It's okay. So we're somewhere south of perfect. And no matter the environment we create, no matter how good you are, here's just a good psychological principle. It's a good spiritual principle. It's a good life principle. You cannot be good enough to make somebody else always do the right thing. Now, in psychological environments, we call that codependency. This environment where you feel the responsibility to always carry the weight of somebody else's decisions. And so you manipulate, you change, you adjust to get them to do. It's a surefire way to lose your identity. It's a surefire way to live in condemnation and guilt and unbelievable stress. And I'm telling you, there are parents all over the north suburbs here where God has planted this church to minister who are living that exact life with their children. And Facebook doesn't help. I'm a huge fan. But you get on there and you see stories, highlights of people's lives. You watch the highlight reels. 
What you don't know is behind every positive post, there's five, six arguments. There's challenges, and you see somebody's vacation or somebody's great kid, and look at this thing. And the studies are proven out. This is not Ben talking. These are scientific studies that have been done that show that most people, when they get done looking at Facebook, feel worse about themselves because they do this comparative thing. So we've got the entire culture looking at parents saying, somehow you're not as good a parent as this person, this person, this person. We have challenges in our own homes that sometimes can convince us we're not very good at anything. And then you have Bible verses like this that get truth covered over with false assumptions that make it even worse. So rebellion can happen anywhere. Here's here's another truth from, from God's word. Everyone is responsible for his or her own actions. Everyone. That means you, the person next to you, your kids are responsible at some point for their own actions. Now, let's be clear. When they're very little, you have a lot of control, a lot of power. As they get older, guess what happens? They get a mind of their own. They get a will. They grow. They develop. They get an opinion. They get a personality. Of course you have an impact on that. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, and I will not read the whole thing for you. This is an incredible, fascinating passage for parents. Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he's a prophet in a unique time in Israel's history. He's a prophet when there's an exile. That is, the children of Israel have been carried off, most of them, to Babylon in captivity. It's not a good, good time. Not a good time. And they're, they're talking about how they got there. How did God's people end up in captivity as slaves? So, so, so the common saying is, is, we're here not because of what we did. We're here because of what our parents did. And they had a proverb for this. That the parents eat sour grapes, but the kids' teeth are set on edge. That was the proverb they would quote. So the prophet Ezekiel comes along and he gives them a word from God and he says, look, here's the deal. You're not in, you're not in slavery simply because of what happened in your past. Of course, our past has a, his, has, has a connection. He explores that in this passage. But you're here because of your own rebellion. And then he gives us some pretty pointed verses. He gives us some pretty pointed verses in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 32. But I'm going to pick up at verse 17. Now, knowing that background, that there's this debate, how did we end up here? He says, verse 17. He's talking about a a good kid who lived in a bad environment. He says, this kid, he will not die for his father's sins. He'll surely live, but his father will die for his own sins because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share in the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wickedness man will be charged against him. In other words, we stand alone. There comes a point in everybody's life when they personally are responsible. So verse 30 says, therefore, O house of Israel, I'll judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. So if that's true, then repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and take a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Our point here is, is that at some point, no matter what environment a kid was raised in, they begin to become responsible for their own choices. That's why some adult kids look very different than the environment they were raised in because rebellion abounds in everybody's heart, yours and your kids. And no amount of perfection in you will fully cover their rebellion. 
Good parenting helps. Good environment helps. Partnering with a healthy church like this helps. It doesn't guarantee anything. In fact, every single boy and girl at some point is going to have to come to terms with their own rebellion. And in a church environment, we hope they do that by submitting their will, which includes their rebellion, to the lordship of Jesus. And they do that not because their parents want them to, because that doesn't work. They do that for it to work because they feel the conviction of God and they respond on their own as an individual to the call of Jesus to become his disciple. So, rebellion abounds. Each one of us stands alone. And here's, here's the final thing I want to say about this, is that we can have lots of influence, but we don't have any power. We can have lots of influence as parents, but we don't have any power. And that gets more and more true as kids get older. I don't like this. Because I'm going to be honest with you. And parents, you know what I'm getting say, ready to say, too. This is not arrogance. You have the ability, like I do, to look at your kids. I look at mine. And you know, because of your wisdom and experience, exactly what they need to do at this moment that would be the best and most wise decision. And you're, you're right. You know that friend isn't good for them. That environment isn't good. Those grades, this homework pattern, it's not going to work. And you can talk to your blue in the face. You can adjust and manipulate in a, in a good way, discipline in a good way, and you can make some effort, some real progress. But at the end of the day, you don't have any real power. And there's going to come a point when they either move out, right, or, or they just disregard your influence altogether, if that's where, the, the way this goes, where you have no power, no say really in what they do. And every parent has to come to terms with this. So what, what do you do with it? Well, I think what we do is we try to uncover then what is the truth of this verse and strip, strip away all this condemnation and falsehood. So here, here's just a quick verse as it relates to this idea that we can have influence but not power. Proverbs 21, here's what the verse says. There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. And he gives us an example from the horse, which reminds me of kids. There, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So, so we can get everything ready, but at the end of the day, only God's the one that has power. So let me give you a second advanced kind of biblical concept. Scripture, interpreted scripture. Here's a second one. A proverb, and I'm going to blow some of your minds, a proverb isn't a promise. A proverbs are not promises. This is an advanced biblical concept. Scripture interprets scripture, and proverbs aren't prob- promises. So we have some proverbs in our, in our day and time, all right? What goes around comes around. That's true, isn't it? But not everywhere, not all the time in every sense. Not, not every time you do something bad does it come back. Not every time you do something good does it come back. But generally speaking, it does. It, here's another one. Play with fire, going to get burned. Not always. I've caught my kids playing with fire more than once, which means if we come to your house, hide the matches. Hide the matches. All right. So yeah, but, but over time, eventually, it's generally true, play with fire, get burned. These are Proverbs, all right? They're trustworthy, but they're not a guarantee. And there's the problem with this particular myth that a godly home guarantees godly kids. Because Proverbs tell us how life generally works out. They're trustworthy. And at our own peril, do we completely ignore them? Because you and I, we're smart enough to know the challenge between parents have massive influence 
And at some point, kids are fully responsible for their own choices. You can, you're smart enough to wrestle with that. And so the Proverbs gives us the way life typically works. But they don't guarantee us how life's going to work. Generally speaking, you play with fire, you get burned. Generally speaking, if you and I do the work to train up a child, then we set them up for the best possibility of not departing away from that instruction as they get older. So here's three big problems when we believe spiritually damaging falsehoods. Number one, false guilt. Some of you... um, some of us have, have, have made a major investment in our kids, and you've taken it seriously, and they still don't get the grades you want them to get, and they still don't make the decisions you want them to make, and of course, you're not perfect. So again, you either got to go to perfection, or you have to wrestle with the gap, and it, my, my, my heart breaks for parents that carry false guilt, and it's really easy when a parent's going through something with their kids, and a kid has made some dumb decision, for that parent to feel condemnation. And then you have a Christian community potentially heaping more of that on them. And I think every parent in the room should do regular inventory of how they're doing as a parent and whether or not they're taking God's stuff seriously in their home. But I don't think that every time your kid has a problem, you have to wrestle with guilt. I think God wants to free you from that, especially as your kids get older. So there's false guilt. Here's, here's the other side, and I think this is worse. False pride. You got a good kid? You know what that means, don't you? You're doing it. You're killing it. And, and you probably are, honestly. In fact, we probably could learn from you. I, I know I could. And my kid's not perfect. And I don't mean that in some cond- condescending way. But the problem is, at the end of the day, there's this inflated. And so sometimes we get into image management with our kids. I'm going to be honest. I'm very selective what I tell you about my kids. That's for their protection, but also for my ego. That's why I told stories about other people's kids today right? The the problem is both false guilt and false pride. Here's the one that really breaks my heart, kind of a false hope. See, the way we've interpreted this passage, if I do it right now, even if they go through a decade of hell, they're going to come back. That really isn't what that verse says. The verse says that there's power when parents do the investment to influence the life of a kid so that they won't stray too far. Now, the other one may be true. Maybe they'll come back, but that's not what the verse says. So holding on to this verse is to guarantee your kid's coming back around. It really is a misapplication. I think that produces a false hope. I don't mean to shatter hope here because there is a place for hope, and we're going to get there, and it's not going to take very long here right now. So let's talk about some ways to make it easier for your kids to know God because I think that's the goal. Get your kids to, to know God. And here are ways that we can apply appropriately this passage to set them up where, in a general sense, they get trained right and they move forward without ever straying too far, which is what the verse actually says. Number one, I think we have to work on having a great marriage. Work on having a great marriage. More than you being a great parent, you need to be, I need to be a great husband. My wife needs to be a great wife. That's the single best thing you can do. Now, that word great has all kinds of implications. And, and I'm hoping that instead of feeling condemnation about parenting today, you'll feel conviction to go out and work on your marriage. Because more than anything, your kids need to see what it looks like for a humble man and a humble woman to come together in a home. And just like you can't be a perfect parent, you can't be a perfect spouse, but you can have a repentant heart 
You can bring humility. You can work on known problems and patterns because at this point it should be two adults coming together around a shared goal. So work on your marriage. All right? Here's another thing I think we can do. We can model what we hope to get. I mean, it's really not healthy to expect your kids to be all that radically different than you. And I'm going to tell you as a parent, one of my biggest challenges is seeing my own foibles and faults coming to life in the life of my kids. So you know what I do? I just blame their mom. I do. Right? Of course, if I do that, then I do that to my peril and theirs, right? But that's the truth. I see a hard-headedness in my kids, right? I see a stubbornness there. And so when it's good, when they're tenacious, you know what tenacious is. It's stubbornness in the right places. The other side of that is stubbornness, which is tenaciousness in the wrong places, right? But modeling what you hope to get, which means if I want my kids to have an authentic life filled with God, knowing that they're not perfect, then I need to exhibit the reality that I'm not perfect and I need and invite regularly God into my life. And the final thing I would say here, just there's a lot more we could say, is we've got to adapt to their unique bent and to the world that they live in. It's, it's not like it was when I grew up. And understanding their world to some degree, being able to talk about it. I think conversations go a long way to healthy parenting. It, it, we, we tend to gauge the temperature of our parenting by the amount of free conversation that's happening. Too, too big, just real, real quick, conversations and laughter. And that's really hard when kids are in the middle teen years. Conversations and laughter for us go a long way. All right? So let's talk about how to make it harder for your kids to know God and, and, and appropriately apply this passage in the, in, the, in, the, in the reverse sense, all right? So here's a way to make it very difficult. Be unreasonably strict. I don't know what that means in your environment, but I know that the Bible cautions us in Ephesians 6 for fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't exasperate them. There's a way to do parenting that literally sucks the life out of a kid. It has something to do with this being unreasonably strict. Now, there's unreasonably not strict, right? So, so those are the danger zones. Somewhere in the middle of discipline, appropriate discipline. I don't know what that is, but there's incredible resources out there. And I can tell you, as a church, we're here to help you with that. And so if you're, if you're in the middle of that, you can talk to one of our kids' workers. They're going to direct you to one of our leaders. We're going to get you resources. There are things you can do. Here's another way. I'm going to be cautious with this one, but I think sometimes if we embarrass our kids with our religious zeal. There's nobody more a true believer in this room than me. I believe the Bible, all of it. I believe it's true. All of it. All the way from the table of contents to the maps in the back. I buy it. But there's a way to do your religion in front of kids and usually in front of other people and your kids are watching that actually reduces that fire in their lives and embarrasses them. And so again, Colossians chapter 3, fathers don't embitter your children, they're going to become discouraged. And we can do that, we have to be cautious not to do that with spiritual things. One time I had made a major mistake uh, growing up, way against our family rules. I was about 15, and I can't even tell you what it is, because I'm embarrassed by it to this day. So my dad came to me, and, and his first engagement with me was, I can't believe you did this, it's so embarrassing. And then he literally just stopped talking. And I thought, here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, my gosh. I want to get killed right here. My life's going to be over. I'm only 15. I hadn't driven yet. Hadn't had sex yet. I was scared to death. 
that I, someone's going to be gone. I wasn't going to have all the things that life had to offer, which, of course, is cars and women. So I clearly wasn't thinking straight, all right? But, but anyway, um, and so he stops, and he looks at me and says, I am so sorry, because I don't really care if it's embarrassing. I care about you. Man, what a moment. And I have, you know, I got a handful of these with my dad. That's incredible. What an incredible catching. He was concerned about how it would look, how it would play at church, and instead he became concerned about me. That's what I'm trying to say here. And then finally, let me give you one big one that I see. If we constantly defend our kids, even when they're wrong, we set them up for failure. There's something about letting children feel the heat of their decisions that's actually good for them. So in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 3 talks about a prophet by the name of Eli, and he has two kids. And I, I, won't, I won't take time to read the verse, but he has two kids, and, and they, they blow it. They mess up, and Eli covers their sin over and over and over again. He's always covering it up, covering it up, covering it up, making it easy, covering it up. Cover. And it ends up destroying his kids and destroying him. But parents, what about if you have prodigal kids, kids that are away? Let me just give you two ideas. I think you should pray for your kids. And... and, and and pray for their brokenness. One of the best things that can happen to you and to me when we're erring from God is to experience some pain from our decisions. We get broken about it. And that brokenness has a way of leading us to repentance. That's a good thing. When we're always covering our kids, they can't experience the natural consequences. And over time then, they're always looking for the bailout. And they'll either disengage fully or they'll just find new ways of bailing out that they don't ever grow. We do that spiritually. So pray for the... And here, here's another one. I think you can find a friend at church and talk to them. You'd be surprised the stories of people, very real life stories, parents who have been there. The final word I want to give is to kids. What do you do? Kids, here's the thing I'd say to you is you can't ride to heaven on your parents' coattails. You've got to take ownership of your faith because it's your responsibility, not your parents. And the older you get, that becomes more and more true. And then the final thing I would say is for all of us is... Like, Let's repent. Come back to God. Get some help and accountability in our lives. This is good for kids. It's good for parents. It's just good. The emphasis of this verse is on the parents doing what they can to set their kids up to know God. It isn't a guarantee, but it also isn't empty of any truth. There are a lot of things we can do. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a handful of other truths in a very similar fashion, one or two key concepts, and kind of pull back the curtain and see what's really going on. But right now, what I'd like you to do is go ahead and take out your Connect card, and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Next step, A for us every week, is to give people a chance to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. We don't like to ever leave without giving you a chance to look to God and say, God, I agree with your word. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I want to accept what you did on the cross and in your resurrection to cover my sin. And so I ask you to do this. Take your pen and check next step A right there where it says, Today, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And then we ask you to put that card in the offering bucket as it comes by at the end of our service in a few moments. And, and then we're going to communicate with you via email. But in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And you can use your words. You can use my words. And you can look to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. Cover my sin. I want you to become the leader, the Lord of my life. All right, here's next step B. You're choosing to get baptized today. So if this is you, go ahead and check the box. And we'll communicate with you about that, answer your questions perhaps, or go ahead and just get you signed up and I'll walk you through that process, all right? Here's the next step C. Let's throw this out there, all right? Today, I'm returning to God and the way of God I know that God has called me to live. So parents, like, if I was talking, God brought you some conviction, repent and turn. 
walk back towards him. Young, younger people in the room, you know, like, you know, a becoming adult, 20-something, 30-something, if, if, if there's some repentance you need to do, just go ahead and use this as an opportunity, we pray, to turn back to God. Check the box as, an, as a statement of honesty, and then we're going to pray about it. I don't need to know the details. God already knows. We'll pray about it. Here's next step D. Here's a prayer that we're praying in our family this week. God, give me, give us the boldness this week to make the next right step in making you a greater priority in our home. Well, that doesn't guarantee success. It certainly lends us in that direction, right? And the next step is our last time. We've been talking about this for a few weeks, and so many of you have responded, and we're so grateful, but I'm going to throw it out one more time. If you're willing to help us in 4C Kids, take this step. I'm going to commit to serving 4C Kids four times over the next 12 weeks to help us maintain an excellent experience for our kids' ministry while we prepare for a new family ministry's pastor. Let's pray about these things right now, and then we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word that it does bring light and life. Now, Lord, I would ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would shine the light where it needs shown right now, that you would reveal to us what's going on, and we would take the steps we need to take. God, I pray against condemnation, false guilt. I pray against false hope. I pray against false pride. And I ask you, God, to do your work in the middle of all that. Bring us conviction where we need it. Help us to turn our hearts fully back to you. And God, I want to take a moment for parents today that are carrying a heavy burden for their kids. God, break our hearts for them. Break their hearts for you. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.